History on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to episode 22, Beware the Ides of March. In this episode, I thought it would be fun to explore how the days of the week and the months of the year got their names. There are a lot of different ways for how this happened, and the information that I'm going to give is just one way that the names for these things have come down to us. This is by no means the definitive list for the names of the days or months, as a lot of cultural borrowing happened over time. What we will see in this episode is a lot of focus on the Norse, Roman, and Greek contributions to the names that are a part of the Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar that most of the Western world uses today. So here we go. Sunday and Monday are short, sweet, and exactly what you'd probably expect. Sunday comes from Greek astrology and is derived from Sun's Day. In Old Norse, it comes from Sunandag. Sunday is also considered to be the Lord's Day, which is where the Spanish name Domingo comes from for the day. Monday comes from Greek and Latin Day of the Moon, and the Old Norse name for that is Monandag. Because of its lunar associations, Lunes became the Spanish word for Monday, appropriate for a day of the moon. Now on to the more interesting days. Tuesday comes from Norse mythology and the god named Tyr. The day is associated with the Roman god Mars, which is where Spanish and other Romance languages get the name Martes for Tuesday. The word Tuesday itself ultimately comes from Old English, Tuesdag, and Middle English, Tuesday. The Old English Tewisdag gives us the Tears Day, which if you mash it together, you can see where, with a little letter manipulation, we get the modern spelling of Tuesday. But who is Tear, and why does he get his own day? To answer that question, we have to dive into Norse mythology. The story goes that Tom Hiddleston, uh, I mean Loki, had three monstrous children with the giantess Angraboda. There was the serpent Jormungadr, known as the world serpent because when Odin threw the newborn into the sea, it grew so large that it could encircle the earth. There was Loki's daughter Hel, who ruled over a realm named Hel, both of which lent their name to the Christian underworld. And finally, there was Fenrir, the monstrous wolf. Fenrir was prophesied to be the one to kill Sir Anthony Hopkins, uh, I mean Odin, during the events of Ragnarok, which was the literal end of the world in Norse mythology. Now the Norse gods, being the Norse gods, they try to do everything possible to forestall the events of Ragnarok for as long as possible. Odin, having sacrificed an eye to gain wisdom and the ability to write poetry, determined that the monstrous wolf Fenrir should be bound. Now Fenrir had grown up in the vicinity of the Aesir, or the gods and goddesses like Odin and Thor. The problem was that Tyr was the only member of the Aesir who was brave enough to approach the rapidly growing wolf to give him food. Now, if it was me, and I had access to a giant wolf that was destined to eat me, I don't know if I would be giving it any food and helping it grow stronger. But anyway, Tyr was the only Acer who dared get close to Odin's eventual killer. The gods formed a plan and ordered the creation of three fetters. The first fetter was named Lading. They brought Lading to Fenrir and basically dared him to put it on and try to break out. Fenrir looked at the first fetter and figured that, though it was made of strong iron, he could still break it. So the gods put Lading on Fenrir. Guys, come on, this is too easy, Fenrir said, as with one kick of his leg, Lading snapped off. 
The Acer put their heads together and soon enough produced another fetter that was twice as strong as the first. This one was called Dromi. Surely, they said to Fenrir, you will gain great fame and renown if you are able to break this fetter. Fenrir looked at the fetter, back to the Acer, and back to the fetter. His wolf brain was considering the possibilities. Prove he could break Dromi and get all the glory and renown? or show that he couldn't, and be forced to live with not only the shame of being chained, but also the shame of not being strong enough. Decisions, decisions. Well, like most of the people in Norse mythology, and as we talked about in episodes 14, 15, and 16, you better believe Fenrir chose fortune and glory, kid. And besides, he had grown strong since he broke that silly baby Ladig, and he figured that Dromi wouldn't be too difficult. So Fenrir allowed the gods to bind him with the fetter Dromi. The gods placed the chain on the great wolf and hurried back. Fenrir shook himself. He strained. He huffed and, and he puffed. And with one kick, he broke Dromi. Some versions of the story say that pieces practically exploded off him and flew far away into the distance. I imagine Fenrir looked smugly at the Acer as he did some wolf strongman poses, Maybe he licked his chops in Odin's direction or something. Suffice to say that the gods were not too happy about this turn of events. The Aesir sent for the dwarves and had them make the third fetter. This third fetter was called Gleipnir and was created using six impossible ingredients. The six ingredients were the sound of a cat's footfall, the roots of a mountain, the sinews of a bear, the breath of a fish, the spit of a bird, and the beard of a woman. These six things were somehow all gathered and crafted together in the land of Nidavellir. With their powers combined, the six ingredients produced a chain that was as thin as a silk ribbon, but stronger than any chain made of iron. The Aesir brought the ribbon to Fenrir and showed him that none of them could break it. They pulled and twisted Gleipnir with all their might, but said that surely the great wolf Fenrir, breaker of Lading and Dromi, would have no problem with breaking such a small thing as this ribbon. Fenrir suspected a trick. He rightly pointed out that he had nothing to gain from attempting such a feat as he had already proven himself to the Aesir twice before. The Aesir agreed with the wolf, but upped the ante a little bit. They stated that if Fenrir wasn't able to break Gleipnir, then the gods had nothing to fear from the wolf. If that was the case, then Fenrir would be freed from the little silken ribbon, and everyone would go home knowing that Fenrir was strong, sure, but he wasn't that strong. The gods wouldn't have to worry about him at all. Oh man, most of us nowadays would probably shrug and go on with our lives, free and unchained. Not Fenrir. In the Norse world, this was a big insult to go after another's strength or pride. Fenrir still suspected a trick but agreed to being bound on one condition. Since the gods had questioned his strength and courage, he would test theirs. He would allow himself to be bound, but one of the gods had to put their hand in his mouth. This put the Aesir in a tough spot. They desperately needed Fenrir to be bound to forestall Ragnarok and to keep Odin from being eaten raw and wriggling. But no one wanted to put their hand in the ginormous wolf's mouth. The Acer looked back and forth at each other, waiting for someone to volunteer. No one did. Thor probably made the excuse that he needed both hands to drive his goat chariot. Odin had already lost an eye, so he was out. An invulnerable Balder had already been killed by Loki in the little twig of mistletoe. 
Finally, Fenrir's handler, an all-around brave guy, Tyr, stepped forward. He was the only one brave enough to feed the beast, after all, so he was pretty familiar with the big pointy teeth and nasty breath of the wolf. Tyr stepped forward and placed his right hand in the mouth of Fenrir. Fenrir stood still while the ribbon-chain Gleipnir was wrapped around and around him. Maybe Fenrir smiled a bit to himself as he felt the lightness of the ribbon-chain. Maybe Tyr stood stoic and still while he held his hand in place. Finally, Gleipnir was in place, and the Acer held their breath. Fenrir, like he had with the chains Lading and Dromi, kicked. The ribbon-chain didn't break. He kicked again, and nothing. In fact, the ribbon chains seemed to be getting tighter. In a rage, Fenrir struggled and struggled, but the ribbon chain not only didn't break, but kept getting tighter and tighter. Furious, Fenrir bit down, and with a spray of blood, Tyr lost his hand. The triumphant Aesir laughed and quickly tied Fenrir to a stone slab and stuck a sword in his mouth, Bugs Bunny-like, with the point digging into the roof of his mouth and the hilt behind his fangs on the bottom. Norse myth says that Fenrir will be chained there like that until the day that Ragnarok comes, when he will finally break free and devour Odin. So on that cheery note of deception and doom, let's move on to Wednesday. Wednesday, in the Germanic-slash-Old Norse tradition, comes from the Old English Wodensdag, or Woden's Day. Wednesday is also associated with the Roman god Mercury, which is where the Spanish and Romance languages get the name Miércoles for Wednesday from. But back to Woden. We've already met Woden, and if his name seems a little familiar, it's because we've dropped the W from the front and pronounce it Odin. Yep, Wednesday is named after the Allfather himself in Norse mythology. We've dealt extensively with Odin on this podcast before, so instead of going through another myth, I'd like to briefly look at one of the enduring figures in modern fantasy literature, and where he finds his roots in the character of Odin. Ready? Let's do it. In Norse mythology, Odin does a lot of things. He was a warrior, a poet, and the individual most responsible for keeping Ragnarok at bay. He didn't eat anything, since mead functioned as both his food and his drink, and he liked to wander around in disguise as an old man. In the field of mythological studies, Odin's propensity of walking around like an old guy is known as the Odinic Wanderer trope. Now it should come as no surprise to anyone who has listened to episodes 17 and 18 that Professor John Ronald Rule Tolkien was a huge fan of Norse mythology. And it was this trope of the Odinic Wanderer that helped inspire the creation of the character of Gandalf the Grey. When Odin was rocking his wanderer disguise, he typically wore a wide-brimmed hat, blue cloak, carried a staff, and had a long white beard and was missing an eye. Compare that with a description of Gandalf the Grey that we get in the opening pages of The Hobbit. Quote, All that the unsuspecting Bilbo saw that morning was an old man with a staff. He had a tall, pointed blue hat, a long gray cloak, a silver scarf over which his long white beard hung down below his waist, and immense black boots. End quote. The comparison is further strengthened when you look at their names. Odin goes by many names, including Gengari, meaning wanderer, and Harbard, meaning graybeard. In the Tolkien legendarium, Gandalf's Sindarin name, Mithrandir, means the gray pilgrim or gray wanderer. In both Tolkien's legendarium and the Norse myths, these two figures of immense power both serve as the only aid to their non-divine friends. 
contrary to other gods and other mythologies, aside from Odin, the Norse gods don't associate with humans. The same could be said for the Maya in Middle-earth, as Gandalf is the only one of his kind that we see having anything positive to do with the inhabitants of Middle-earth. Finally, both bore a magic ring. Odin's golden ring was named Dropnir and had the ability to multiply itself. According to myth, every ninth night, eight new rings would drip from Dropnir, all the same size and weight of the original. Gandalf carried one of the three rings of power named Narya. Narya was a ring set with a ruby that had the ability to inspire others to resist tyranny, domination, and despair. Odin, however, was the god of poetry and passion, and was associated with the famed and feared berserker warriors. Odin didn't care about the why of a fight, only with how a fight was resolved, which was usually violence. Not concerned with justice and fairness, Odin probably wasn't a Norse god that you would want to meet when he was in one of his violent moods. Whereas with Gandalf, you only have to worry about being a fool, or a took, or a fool of a took, to really see his wrath. Thursday is a pretty easy name to trace. Originally called Torisdag in Middle English, meaning Thor's Day, it was a small step to go from that to Thursday. Thursday is associated with the Roman god Jupiter, which is where Spanish gets the name Jueves for Thursday, and where the British get the expression by Jove from. By Jove essentially means by Jupiter, but back to Thor. Of all the Norse gods and goddesses, Thor is perhaps the most well-known, and thanks to Marvel Comics, most misrepresented. In the myths, Thor was a broad-chested man with fiery red hair and a fiery red beard. He hated giants, killing them every chance he got, and rode around in a chariot pulled by two goats, Tangrisnir and Tangnyoster, or Teeth-Bearer and Teeth-Grinder, respectively. Thor kills and eats these two goats each night, only to resurrect them again in the morning. Thor is destined to defeat and be defeated by the world serpent Jormungandr during the events of the Twilight of the Gods, or Ragnarok. Jormungandr is one of Loki's three monstrous children and was the one that Odin threw into the sea that we saw earlier. The story says that the giant serpent will slither its way onto dry land and spew poison into the sky, contaminating everything with its foul breath. Almost like a teenager with axe body spray. Thor and Jormungandr will battle fiercely, with Thor eventually killing the giant serpent. He will then walk nine steps before falling dead, having been poisoned with Jormungandr's venom. We've gone into the history and impact of Thor enough on this podcast, back in the Norse Code episodes, so if you want to know more, you should check those out. That said, let's move on to everyone's favorite day of the week, Friday. Ah, Friday. What will we do without you? Without you, there would be sadness across all lands as you signal the end of the work week and the beginning of the glorious weekend. In a land without Fridays, the only silver lining is that no one will ever be able to sing the atrocious line, it's Friday, Friday, gotta get down on Friday. Ugh. Anyway, the word Friday comes to us from the Old Norse Frigadag, meaning day of Frigg. Frigg is featured in Norse mythology as the wife of Odin. She sits as the highest ranking of the Norse goddesses and is often associated with foresight and wisdom, two things that Odin finds particularly appealing. For such a high-ranking member of the Aesir, Frigg is not mentioned that often, playing bit parts in some stories and really only having a central role in the tale of the death of Baldur. 
Frigg is commonly associated with another goddess named Freya, and the two figures may have been merged as one back before the Norse myths were written down from the oral stories. Freya was essentially the Norse version of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, as Freya was associated with love, beauty, and everything that goes with it. Freya appears more often in Norse myth than Frigg, usually as the object of desire for another Aesir or a Jotun. It should come as little surprise then that Friday is associated with the Roman name for Aphrodite, which was Venus, and is consequently where Spanish gets the name Viernes from for the day. Freya is not just some damsel in distress, however, displaying intelligence and quick wit in a story called the Locasena, where she engages in a flighting with Loki. A flighting was essentially a rap battle where the two rap combatants would hurl insults at each other in verse form. Other stories involving Freya are more of what you would expect from a goddess associated with love, beauty, and everything that goes with those two, so we'll just skip over those. Instead, we'll head south to Rome for the last day of the week, the great Saturday. Saturday gets its name from Saturni Dies, or Saturn's Day. Spanish gets Sabado from Saturn as well. Saturn, for the Romans, was the god associated with time. Now, long before Saturn was the name of a planet that God liked, so he put a ring on it, Saturn was the Roman name for the Greek titan Kronos. Kronos was not a great guy in Greek mythology, taking the parental expression of, I could just eat you up, a little too literally. As in, that's exactly what he did when his wife Rhea bore him his five kids, Demeter, Hestia, Hera, Hades, and Poseidon. Kronos had discovered that he was destined to be overthrown by his own offspring, so he did the only logical thing a paranoid parent could do and ate his children as soon as they were born. By the time Rhea was to give birth to Kronos' sixth child, she had had enough with the kid eating and worked out a plan to save her newborn, Zeus, from the same fate as his siblings. You have to wonder why Rhea didn't try to save her kids earlier, but myths are weird sometimes. Anyway, little Zeusy was born on the island of Crete, where apparently Kronos couldn't see or hear, and was swapped out with a big stone, which Kronos promptly ate and went back to watching grass grow or whatever the Titans did in those days. Maybe he used his powers to watch football or something. Seems like he'd be a Tennessee Titans fan. He definitely would have remembered the Titans at any rate. Now, bad dad jokes aside, Zeus grew up and eventually forced dear old dad Kronos to spit out all of the things he ate, the first being the stone Zeus, and then the other five gods and goddesses. The angry kids then waged a great war against Kronos and the other titans named the Titanomachy, which means titan battle. After ten brutal years of warfare, the titans were overthrown and sealed in Tartarus, essentially the deepest level of the underworld. Zeus is crowned king of the gods, marries his sister Hera, and goes on to have lots and lots of kids. Sometimes by Hera, but more often not, giving us the majority of Greek mythology. So that is the short, sweet, history-on-the-side account of how the days of the week got their names. Keep in mind that cultures from around the world had their own ways of describing and naming the individual days. The information in this episode merely highlights one way that happened in the Western world. On to the names of the months. As a reminder, we're going to look at the months in the order that we in the West are most familiar, based off the Gregorian calendar. The Roman calendar looked a little different, especially in the order of the months. First up is January. January comes from the Roman deity Janus. Janus had two faces, 
very much like Professor Quirrell in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. One face in the front, as usual, and one face on the back of his head, facing the other way. The first time I had ever heard of Janice was back in the 1995 James Bond movie Goldeneye, where the two-faced MI6 agent Alec Trevelyan was revealed as the big bad guy. Janice was the god of many things, most of which had to do with transitions in time and place. He was the god of comings and goings, of beginnings and endings, of gates, of doorways, and of passages. In this way, Janus gives his name fittingly to the month of January, transitioning us out of the old year and into the new year. February also comes to us from the Romans. It is named after a purification ritual called Februa, which used to take place on the 15th day of the month. Februa was also called Lupercalia, which was possibly a wolf-themed festival devoted to the purifying of the city of Rome of evil spirits. The wolf theme makes a certain amount of sense, given that Rome's origin myth involved a mother wolf taking care of the infant Romulus and Remus, the founders of the city. March comes from the Roman month Martius, which was the first official month on the Roman calendar. Martius, fittingly, comes from Mars, the Roman god of war, and the Roman version of the Greek god Ares. It says something about a culture that the beginning of the year is marked by recognizing the god of war, and, as history shows us, the Romans certainly lived up to that dedication. The coming of March usually meant the beginning of the war season for that year, a season which lasted until the end of what is now October. And, as my high school English teacher, Miss Campbell, was fond of saying in an evil witch voice when we looked at Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar, Beware the Ides of March. In that play, as Caesar is going down the street in Act 1, Scene 2, Shakespeare has a soothsayer calling shrilly to Caesar and warns him twice to beware the Ides of March, meaning March 15th. Caesar pretty much ignores the soothsayer and the saying of his soothes and goes about life as normal. In Act 3, Scene 1, as Caesar is passing by on the way to the Senate House, he sees the soothsayer again and tells him, a bit sarcastically I imagine, the Ides of March are come. Yes, Caesar, says the soothsayer before ominously adding, but not gone. The soothsayer then fades from the play, and Caesar goes up to the Senate House. There he starts to give a speech before he is rudely interrupted by a group of senators stabbing him twenty-three times. With a, et tu, Brute? Julius Caesar died on the floor of the Senate building on the 15th of March in 44 B.C. We're not done with Julius Caesar just yet, though, so we will leave him to roll his death-saving throws on the Senate floor and move on to April. April comes to us from the Latin name Aprilis, which may or may not have come to us from the Latin word aprire, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, which means to open, referencing the opening of the flowers. April may also have Greek roots, and if so, would have come to us as Aphrilis, after the Greek goddess Aphrodite. In either case, the month was sacred to the Roman goddess Venus and Greek goddess Aphrodite, both goddesses of love. The Anglo-Saxons, according to the Venerable Bede, called the month Etremonath, which Bede says is where the word Easter comes from. May comes from the goddess Bonadia, who was the Roman equivalent of the Greek goddess Maya. Both goddesses were considered to be fertility goddesses. Roman poet Ovid says something different, though. Ovid says in the poem Fasti, Book 5, quote, You ask whence I suppose the name of the month of May to be derived. 
The reason is not quite clearly known to me. As a wayfarer stands in doubt and knows not which way to go, when he sees roads in all directions, so, because it is possible to assign different reasons, I know not where to turn. The very abundance of choice is an embarrassment. End quote. Ovid goes on to say, though, quote, The Senate House was then open only to men of mature years, and the very name of Senate signifies a ripe old age. The elders legislated for the people, and certain laws define the age at which office might be sought. An elder man used to walk between younger men, at which they did not repine, and if he had only one companion, the elder walked on the inner side. Who would dare to talk body in the presence of an old man? Old age conferred a right of censorship. This Romulus perceived, and on the men of his choice he bestowed the title of fathers. On them the government of the new city was conferred. Hence I incline to think that the elders, or maiores, gave their own name to the month of May. They considered the interests of their own class. And Numitor may have said, Romulus, grant this month to the old men, and the grandson may not have been able to resist his grandsire. No slight proof of the proposed honor is furnished by the next month, the month of June, which is named after young men, Huevinus. End quote. So that's Ovid's take on the naming of May and June. However, Ovid also states elsewhere that the month of June is named after the Roman goddess Juno, the wife of Jupiter. Juno and Jupiter were the Roman equivalent of the Greek Hera and Zeus, respectively. As such, Juno was the goddess of marriage and childbirth. July used to be called Quintilis, and was the fifth month of the official Roman calendar, and was usually associated with Jupiter, the Roman version of Zeus, and the supreme god in both cultures' mythologies. Fun fact, the name Jupiter can be broken down into Zeus, meaning sky, and pater, meaning father. So you have Zeus pater, referencing the Greek Zeus and meaning sky father. Zeuspater becomes Jupiter and becomes Jupiter. So July was called Quintilis up until the Ides of March in 44 BC. Then, like we mentioned earlier, Julius Caesar forgot to beware the Ides of March, met the business end of a bunch of knives on the Senate floor, and failed his three death-saving throws. In the years following, the Senate decided to honor Caesar and renamed the month of Quintilis after Julius, giving us the name July. August was originally called Sextilis because it was the sixth month of the Roman calendar. Then around 8 BC, it was renamed in honor of Gaius Octavius, also known as Caesar Augustus. This is the guy mentioned in the Bible as the one who decided the whole world needed to be taxed, which made it necessary for a man named Joseph and his very pregnant wife Mary to travel to Bethlehem. Because of Caesar Augustus's great military deeds, conquests, and triumphs, the Roman Senate renamed the month of Sextilis after him, giving us the month of August. This brings us to September through December. September comes to us from the Latin for the number 7, October comes from the Latin for the number 8, November comes from the Latin for the number 9, and December from the Latin for the number 10. These names indicate that these months used to be the 7th through 10th months of the Roman calendar. Then Julius Caesar died, and Caesar Augustus decided to be awesome, and the Romans decided to change their 10-month calendar to a 12-month one. As we've said, they renamed Quintilis and Sextilis to July and August, 
then added in January and February, bumping all the other months back two places in order. So there you have it, the names for the days and months of our year in the Gregorian calendar. And that'll do it for this episode of the History on the Side podcast. Apologies for the long span of time between episodes lately. Teaching in a pandemic has required lots of time and energy to do well, and new challenges appear every day. So I thank you for your patience and support as we navigate these weird times together. On that note, and before really wrapping it up for this episode, I have two special shout-outs to give. First, a special shout-out to Mr. Aaron in Beaumont for his support and encouragement. You're still wrong about store-bought gumbo roux, though. (laughs) The second shout-out is for Mr. McMaster's class in Denton, Texas. Thank you to Mr. McMaster for bringing the podcast into the classroom as a teaching tool, which is an honor for me and made my night when I found out. Students, I've known Mr. McMaster for quite some time, and you should definitely ask him about his grandpa's awesome barbecue pit. If you have a shout-out request, or if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, cries of outrage, or declarations of independence, you can send them my way by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com, through Facebook or Instagram by searching History on the Side, or by checking out www.historyontheside.com. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Each one helps get the show noticed, and I am grateful for them all. Next time, we will meet a particular French explorer who led an ill-fated attempt to settle North America. Until then, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on the History on the Side podcast. Music